0: It's so good to be with you all, and it's so good to see your faces. Um, When I think about what church looks like and how it should be experienced and what community looks like, I really do think of Community Bible Church. Um, The genuine delight you all have when you greet one another, um, the conversation. So if you came on a little early today, you learned uh, kohlrabi leaves are actually edible. Um, I also learned recently that uh, so are cauliflower leaves. And so uh, always a fascinating conversation and always a good sense of learning together, enjoying one another, and being together. And that's actually really crucial as we look both at this passage and understand um, the larger series we're in. So when Dick invited me to come preach again this week, uh, he said, you know, we're in a series looking at some of the current racial conflict and pain in our country. And last week, Dick looked at uh, Ephesians 3. And I loved the way he started that because he grounds this entire conversation not in we're trying to respond to a cultural moment, but in the larger pattern of what Jesus Christ is doing in the world. In fact, in the larger pattern of what God intended for the world, right? Because Ephesians 3 reminds us that, in fact, God's great purpose from the very beginning has been to unite people together um, into one new body that... um, destroys the dividing walls of hostility between them, reconciles them through Jesus Christ so that they as a body are reconciled to him, which is the passage right before Dick spoke, but that God's great mystery that he was revealing through Paul was not just um, salvation through Jesus Christ, but it was salvation of a broken people caught in their own sin and reconciling them together uh, in jesus christ and that this was the great mystery that paul was announcing gentiles too had access to the faith and so whenever we talk about things like current the current racial conflicts and the racial pain that we're seeing in the world whenever we talk about things like racial reconciliation and ethnic reconciliation and justice it's built in within this larger assumption that what god has been intending from the very beginning as soon as sin entered the world and because he's god before that even Um, I'm gonna allow a diverse people to emerge on this planet and to demonstrate that I am not merely a tribal God of one people, that I'm a limited God to one country. I'm gonna reconcile people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue to myself to demonstrate that I alone am the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth who has created all people, loves all people and has offered salvation to them all. So that as one new people, they will come and worship me. Within that larger um, framework, which, as I said, I love, and had Dick not chosen that passage last week, I would have chosen it for this week. Um, As I was praying and thinking about uh, what to preach on, I was watching what's been happening in our country. And I realized that when we talk about um, injustice, when we talk about racial issues, for some of you, there's a, oh, thank God we're talking about this, because I know the church needs to address this and demonstrate who we are. Because I think God has called us to this. For other folk, there, um, there's tension. Oh no, what are they going to say? And will this be difficult? Will this be painful? How do I understand this? Um, and will it feel super political? Will it feel very gospelly? So this is where brothers and sisters, because um, you know, most of you, many of you, have at least seen me for many years. And know me a little bit. I'm going to presume a little bit on that trust relationship. And I'm going to try to push our conversation in ways that. Like a guest speaker who would never been at CBC. Or who hadn't been to CBC for many years. Might not uh, dare to do. But because I feel like you all know me well enough. And I know you. Um, let's push the conversation forward a little bit. And I hope it will still be deeply grounded on scripture. But I hope it will also open up a little bit. Of what's going on in our culture. So let me pray for us. Um, as we head into uh, what's often uh, difficult territory. Lord Jesus, we desire your honor and glory. More than anything else, I want you, Lord Jesus, to be glorified so that people around the world would acknowledge you as Savior and Lord, because I believe in you. There is life. I believe in you. There is hope. I believe in you. There is forgiveness for sin. I believe in you. Um, There's the renewal of the church to be your hand and arm in the world. And so, Lord Jesus, will you glorify yourself today um, in this sermon and in this uh, series? We desire to be faithful to you and to your scripture. We desire to live out our calling as uh, your people in the world. And so would you do these things? I pray in Christ's name, amen. As you watch uh, what's happening in our culture today, right? As we watch um, the pain expressed by our African-American brothers and sisters, um, both, I think, through the deaths of people like George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, as you watch it um, played out in very um, interesting ways, right, in Christian Cooper's experience in Central Park. sorry, um, yes. And as you um, consider the fact that, I believe the New York Times just reported, if uh, African-American deaths due to COVID-19 are running at two to three times higher, than that of uh, the general white population. As you listen to the continued pleas of um, refugee families and Latino families, as they're dealing with issues around migration and immigration, as uh, Asian Americans like me are telling people, uh, we're regularly now beginning to hear um, comments and experience uh, prejudice in multiple ways. So a good friend of mine is a doctor and uh, she's already said over the course of the last, uh, in the first month of COVID, she had multiple patients walk in the room, see that she was the doctor and walk out and say, I will not be treated by an Asian. They're COVID carriers. Certainly my children heard that in elementary school before elementary schools were closed. How do we engage these as people who are committed to scripture, whose definition around justice and um, Equality should be shaped by scripture, not just by the culture. How do we find our vocation, our sense of calling here? I think Acts 6 verses 1 through 7 gives us at least one window that scripture offers us. It's not every window, but it's at least one window of how to look at this. And as we look at this passage, I want to pay attention to some of the dynamics that are going on in the early church community and how the early church chose to engage them as maybe a model for how we might choose to engage this together. So let's look again at the passage. In Acts uh, chapter six, verse one, it says this, in those, days when the ni- when the sorry, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, let's set the context, right? This is early in the church's life, They've gathered together as a community. They're experiencing a little bit of persecution. There's been purification of the church. Ananias and Sapphira are just the prior chapter. Um, But what I love about this is it begins this way. While the church was growing, right? So this isn't a period of stress at the church where they're thinking, oh no, we're shrinking and people are getting restive or afraid. The church is growing. They're continuing to demonstrate the power and presence of Jesus Christ in the fact that miracles are occurring. The preaching is effective. People are thriving in their faith. And when the church is healthy, it begins to encounter conflict and it chooses to address it this way, right? So it says that, The Hellenistic Jews began to complain that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food compared to the Hebraic Jews. So first, let's be clear about what the difference between these two groups were. It wasn't racial, they were all Jews, and it wasn't even ethnic, they're all Jews. It was cultural in this case. Um, Hebraic Jews would have been the Jews who were from the area, right? From <clears throat> Jerusalem, Judea, maybe in Samaria and the areas nearby. They were primarily Aramaic and Hebrew speakers. They knew the culture. This was the country they grew up in. This is the country they lived in. This is the country, uh, that they've spent all their time in. Those were the Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were different. The Hellenistic Jews were Jews who were in the diaspora. They had come from other parts of the Roman empire, Um, I think the estimate um, I saw at one point if um, Jews were roughly a quarter of the population in the Roman Empire, several million Jews lived elsewhere outside of um, Judea, uh, Samaria, and Jerusalem at the time, right? There are a lot of Jews all throughout Asia Minor, all throughout uh, what is now modern day Italy, in North Africa, in Alexandria. Alexandria was the second largest city for Jews at the time. They were everywhere. And the Hellenistic Jews grew up in, Greco-Roman culture. They were probably predominantly Greek-speaking rather than Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking. Because they grew up in the rest of the Roman Empire, they were um, heavily, I mean, we now say Greek, Greek influence, but right, Greco-Roman. They were heavily influenced and lived according to the um, norms of Roman cultures. So in a crowd, even though you might ethnically identify them as Jews, you would have said, They're kind of model Roman citizens as opposed to model Israelite citizens. So there were cultural um, and language barriers between these two groups. And as the um, early church was distributing food on a daily basis to the widows, which is probably an outgrowth of Acts 2, 44 through 45, right, where um, they broke bread together regularly, and an outgrowth of Acts 4, 32 through 37, where they, um, if you remember that passage where the Um, Luke says nobody was in need because whenever people had need, people would sell their property and their possessions in order to ensure that there was sufficient uh, for those who had the the least. And so that nobody went hungry. So it is part of that daily distribution of food. The Hellenists, the people who were immigrants to Jerusalem, largely, it was disproportionately widows in part because as Jews in the diaspora would age, they would tend to want to go back to Jerusalem and live out their last years there, potentially to die there. And the Hellenists are saying, our widows aren't getting the same amount of food. Some of our widows may not be getting any food at all. And the Hebraic widows have more than enough. Our widows are being overlooked. You can easily imagine how this could happen, right? There are multiple ways that this could happen. It could be the distribution networks um, are incomplete. It could be, um, we didn't know where they were, we didn't know who they are. There are multiple reasons, but it's fascinating to me that while the church is growing and while it's healthy, even as it tries to care for its own members, there are places where that system begins to break down. Um, I wonder just for a moment, right, to flip into the modern era and the modern time, where do we find similar types of inequalities in the distribution of things that uh, respond to human need? education and food, safety, housing, employment, access to health care. Where do these things happen for whatever reason in in the communities that we live in and in the society that we dwell in? One of the reasons, for example, that some have theorized that there are higher death rates in the African-American and Latino communities uh, due to COVID-19 may be things like uh, people in those communities disproportionately work in frontline jobs, which require them to be in contact with people because they can't station, uh, stay in place as easily as those of us who, um, have different kinds of jobs. It may be in some cases, uh, they live in higher density population and housing because that's what they can afford. I know here in Chicago, what we've noticed very clearly is, um, hospitals are not evenly distributed throughout the community. And so, and access to doctors and healthcare is not yet adequately distributed. So some people historically from infancy forward have not had the same access to healthcare as for example, my kids who are growing up in the suburbs where um, I can barely walk out for more than three blocks from my house and I trip over at least five different doctor's offices and three different dentists. Um, There are issues around where food is available. So um, I know an organization that mapped out where all of the major grocery stores are in Chicago. And you can see how they overlay um, income and which communities don't have access to a grocery. So when my wife was working here in Chicago before we moved to New York, almost 18 years ago now, um, when I almost first met you all, uh, she was working, um, she was telling a family, you need to eat healthier, Um, can you add salad or green vegetables to your diet? And they said, where do you buy that and how do you make a salad? Because the little corner shops they uh, were familiar with and had access to uh, didn't sell lettuce, didn't sell tomatoes, didn't sell um, cucumbers, anything that you would put in a cell. And the person said, could you, and my wife's like, you know, you just take vegetables and you toss them together. I said, could you write down the recipe? So my wife had to, like one head of lettuce, tear it in small pieces, right? But, um, and then she said, can you get this? And I said, well, it will take me at least an hour by bus to get to a grocery store that would sell this. So if you're a mom with small children, the thought of, I mean, where are we, taking a bus for even 45 minutes to get to a grocery store so that you can then load up with groceries and take your small children back on a bus back home. Felt overwhelming. In Acts 6, verse 1, there's an, there's an inequality in the distribution of a resource that the church int- intended to offer. Um, one of the reasons that this may happen, and here's where I want to pull in a term that can feel very contentious and very um, frightening. So I'm going to use it, again, trusting that we have this kind of relationship. Um, Some of it may just uh, relate to an issue of privilege. Now, privilege gets thrown around and weaponized a lot. And some people feel like as soon as um, you use the term, you're attacking someone, or uh, some people get very defensive. And so let me define what I mean, and then let me see if it actually might work in the context of this text. Here's what I think privilege is. It's a set of advantages and or immunities that some people have and benefit from on a daily basis compared to everybody else. Um, I think privilege can exist without conscious knowledge that it exists or conscious participation in it, Um, but it's pervasive and it just works to reinforce the system. Um, It does not mean, let me be really clear, that those who benefit from privilege don't work hard. And it does not mean that, um, that people who benefit from privilege necessarily have equal status economically or socially or culturally with those who do not have privilege, right? So let me repeat that again. Privilege is a, is a set of advantages or, and or immunities that somebody has on a daily basis that's different from other people. <clears throat> it can exist without your conscious awareness that you have it or even your conscious choice to participate in it. It does not mean that... Um, uh, that those who benefit, benefit, sorry, it does not mean those who benefit from it don't have to work hard or have not worked hard. Absolutely true that they do. And it does not mean that you necessarily have equal status with those who don't have privilege. So let me give you a real small example from my own life. If you go to a Chinese restaurant that my family would choose to go to voluntarily, which is not every Chinese restaurant, if, you go to a Chinese, if I go to a Chinese restaurant that my family would go to voluntarily, it's very clear to me from the moment I walk in that I have privilege as a fellow Chinese person, right? I know what all the food is already. When we're given menus, I not only get the menu that's in English, I will get the menu that's written in Chinese, which in my mind has by far the better food. They will not offer this menu to people who they don't think can read Chinese, While we're there, I know to off order things that aren't even on the Chinese menu, but I know every Chinese restaurant that serves a lot of Chinese people have. So there's certain vegetables that they don't bother to write down because they're slightly seasonal, but I know when to ask for them. I know how to ask for them and I know I will be given them. Whereas if you only are able to read the English menu, you don't even know these exist. Um, Right, now here's why I think it's an interesting uh, example of privilege. All that occurs to me just because I'm Chinese, I've grown up going to Chinese restaurants, I know Chinese food, and I know how to ask for them. Did I earn any of that? Absolutely not. I was born Chinese. I grew up in a Chinese family. My parents introduced me to these foods. That's just what happens. Do I have equal status to all the other people who might eat there who don't get the special menu? No, I may be less wealthy or less educated. I'm certainly less handsome, right? I mean, all of those things can be true. Have I worked harder Maybe, maybe not. It's irrelevant because I'm in a Chinese majority context at that restaurant. They're going to offer me menu items and I know to ask for them in ways that other people don't know that they exist. Um, Right. When I go to a Chinese restaurant, I have those privileges. Um, It doesn't mean, um, but right, but you can see how small that is. Um, I think if any of you have ever traveled to Canada, you feel the same thing, regardless of your ethnicity and race. Now, I'm choosing Canada because it's so similar to the United States in some ways. But the reality is, uh, my family was just in Canada last summer, and um, we were very aware we were minorities, Um, even though we went to Vancouver, which is heavily Asian, right? We had to open our wallets with our kids and show us all the confusingly colored money, right, right? that uh, we were not familiar with, because we're so used to just green. And so we're like, okay, this color means this, this color means that, right? There were um, things that we had to do constantly to adjust to the Canadian way of doing things. Um, There are different ways of walking along the street and greeting each other than I was used to having just left New York a year ago, than being in Canada. There were certain ways of carrying yourself and the volume of speaking that we were adjusting to. There were all sorts of things that, if you're a native Canadian, come without any thought. And for me, as an American, a minority at that point, um, it required constant, minute adjustments to who we were going to be. Because, in part, what we were training our kids to do is, when you enter a new culture, um, learn to uh, engage that culture and be in that culture. Don't be, um, you know, whoever like whoever you are when you're at home. Part of the reason I'm raising this is I wonder if what was happening in the distribution of food between the Hebraic and the Hellenistic uh, Jews was um, how privilege just invisibly happened to work. So uh, Hebraic Jews were in the majority. It's largely because they were in the majority. They were probably responsible for distributing food. And I don't know about you, but when I work through food distribution lists, of course, it's just natural. I start listing everybody I know, and then I list all the people I might not remember, and then I start calling people. Who did I forget, right? And I add those people Uh, to my list. But if I just go through that list as um, I put it together, inevitably the people I know are going to get food first because I know them. So I'm going to stop and visit with them and make sure they get their stuff and I'll go to everybody else. Very naturally, um, the people I don't know are left off more easily because there's a little bit more distance. Um, It could be as well if you are a Hellenistic Jew who's moved to Jerusalem recently but become a Christian. um, You don't know the larger network of folk, right? So If the food distribution was largely organic and um, done automatically, then if you were a widow who knows 20 people in the fellowship compared to a widow who only knows one or two people in the fellowship, you have 20 people looking out for you as opposed to two people looking out for you, right? I mean, it could be um, the Hellenistic widows didn't speak Aramaic well enough to engage. And so they didn't even know where to ask or to tell people, Hey, I'm here. I need some food. There are all these things that could happen, it's so natural, it's so human. It, I'm sure. I think it was highly unlikely it, there was any malice involved. It's just what happens when people take care of the people they know. And that's a little bit of when we talk about privilege. What happens, right? Is um, it's those natural, unseen, um, unexplained things that reinforce uh, one people as opposed to others. So given like my Chinese restaurant example, in the Chinese restaurant, there's definitely Chinese privilege. Even though I don't speak Chinese in any effective way, I cannot actually order in Chinese, but I know what to say to get the food I want, right? Even though I was born here and I was not born in China. I still, right? There are all these things that happen for us. I think here in the United States, when people talk about white privilege, what they're talking about, it's all the assumed things that are invisible, that inadvertently, or sometimes intentionally, depending on the system, benefit folk uh, who belong to the majority culture. So if you are a fluent native English speaker, everything in the United States is easier. And any of us who uh, have, are immigrants uh, and grew up speaking another language or who have parents who are immigrants know exactly what that's like, right? Uh, just knowing that as a native English speaker, like I grew up here, I can pick up any form, walk into any building and all the instructions are already designed for me to understand, right? Small benefit. Um, The cultural assumptions of how you do things, uh, very different. So, for example, in Chinese culture, we tend to be more indirect. And so um, I was trained as a child not to ask for things directly because that was rude. Um, And instead, as an indirect culture, uh, you let your needs be known, but in a way that allows the person you're asking uh, help from to decline without any loss of face. So rather than saying, I need X, would you give it to me? Um, I uh, allow a need to be known. So, for example, I might be distracted. The person goes, Oh, you seem a little distracted. What's wrong? Oh, sorry. I was thinking about this problem I have, which is a need. The very fact that I express that I'm thinking about this problem, but I don't have a solution to, in an Asian context, often would mean I'm asking you for help. But because I've not asked you directly, you have the freedom to go, That's a terrible problem. Let me help you, which is great. Or, Oh, that's a terrible problem. Let me see if somebody's available who can help you. Which means I'm not going to help you, but I'm still going to respond in a way that's affirmative and encouraging. Now, some of you may think that's really duplicitous, but when the entire culture works that way, we all know what's being asked, but you can all still be very polite while you're doing it. Right? Um, It's a uh, a way of engaging. Well, at least for me, right, Chinese American here in the United States, when I walk into a government office, if I do an indirect ask, I will never be helped right? Um, The United States uh, cultural norms encourage and uh, benefit directness, right? When you're a kid, the way we know you're smart and we know you raise your hand. I have an answer I would love to contribute. Um, I was taught in my culture, Chinese American brought up here in the United States, um, when the teacher thinks you have something to say, they'll call on you. So it's a little rude to go like, I'm smart enough. I like, you should pick me. I'm really bright. I have things to say, right? Completely culturally foreign to how I was raised. So my earliest report cards were all, uh, Greg should participate more. You all, I know, knowing me at this age, are like, wow, he certainly worked on that one. But um, there are cultural assumptions where if you're trained to be deferential and not to put yourselves out, um, you're not perceived to be a leader, you're not perceived to be intelligent, you're not perceived to be engaged. Even though frequently, what you're doing is being polite and saying, the teacher knows who knows the answer, they will call on the people who they want to call on. Why should I hold myself out? Let me move on. This problem emerge emerged between the Hellenistic and Hebraic uh, Jews. Let's be clear what the issue is, though. An issue at this point is not just a distribution of food, as critical as that may be, because the widows would starve without help. They have no income. But also an issue is the unity of the church. Also an issue is what does scripture teach about caring for one another? And what does human flourishing look like? What's at issue is not just the unity of the church and what scripture's teaching is about caring for members of our body. It's also um, what's our witness to Jesus Christ as Lord and savior. And so how does the church recognizing that there's this problem choose to engage with privilege? What I love is the apostles respond this way when they hear this problem. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together, right? The entire community is now gathered and said to them, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, um, in order to wait on tables brothers and sisters choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word what i love is the apostles don't deflect the problem they fully engage it right and let's think quickly about how they might have deflected this problem so one way i've heard this passage taught is that they go you know we shouldn't be bothered by this we're going to be committed to prayer and the ministry of the word rather than waiting tables right? You handle the finances and the feeding of people. That's not important. We're committed to prayer and worship. But I think what's fascinating is they don't say, get perspective, just worship and study the scriptures. This isn't a problem at all, right? Because they in fact offer a solution. What they don't say is stay focused on the gospel. All all that matters is evangelism and we should be doing evangelism. Why are you worried about food distribution? That's not what they say. They come up with a solution to the problem. They affirm the holistic needs of the people of God at this moment. And what they say is, we know what we have to focus on, so let's appoint seven more leaders in the church to deal with this so that the church collectively deals with all of these issues simultaneously. What we're good at is preaching and scripture and and prayer. Let's find other people who are really good at the distribution of food and engaging these issues. Appoint them, and they'll lead that, and we're going to affirm that and empower that, right? So what they don't say is, That's less important than scripture and prayer and said, Hey, let's get more people to work on this. What they do not say, right? Because I think the silences are really important here. They don't say, you know, I don't even know why you're raising this issue. I don't see cultural differences. We're all Jews and we're all Christians, right? Which is similar to what I sometimes hear in these conversations. Let's just be colorblind. Um, I don't see race. I don't see ethnicity. And um, the disciples don't do that. Uh, They affirm there's a problem that needs to be addressed. I love the fact that they did that in part because the picture that we have at the end in Revelation 7 is not of a colorblind um, society or of people who all blend together in some taupe-colored mass, all kind of singing hill songs together in English, right? What you see instead at the end of time is people of every tribe, nation, and language who are still distinctly different, and because of their differences, um, give greater glory to God because he's not just a tribal deity of Jews. Um, You see people of every tribe, nation, and language gathered together because in Acts 2, God gives the church the ability to hear different languages, Um, sorry, gives the church the ability to speak in different languages so that they can incarnate the gospel in ways that are culturally relevant to the people who hear them. Very different from Muslims, right, who want everybody to study the Quran in Arabic. We instead translate scripture into every language so that people can go as a Japanese American, as a Japanese person, I can read the, um, the gospels in Japanese, right? As somebody in East Timor, I can read my language uh, and see it in the scriptures. Uh, that's what the church does. And when we say, Oh, I don't seriously, um, we actually flatten out the differences that God delights in. We actually strip away a little bit of what it means to be made in God's image collectively together It would be a lot like saying, when I see a woman, I don't think of you as a woman at all. Or for any man, right? No no man has ever felt complimented. I don't think of you as a man. But that's part of intrinsically who we are, just as we are uh, people of ethnicity and culture. What I love is that they do not say, hey, you're being divisive by raising this issue. Instead, what they say is, there's actually current brokenness in our system, so they gather everybody together and say, together, brothers and sisters, let's address this. Right? They aren't afraid of the difficult conversation. Um, let me get a little maybe on sensitive ground. They don't say, look, all widows matter. I don't know why you're raising this. Because of course they do. Every single widow was of value to the early church. right? There's no question about that for them. That's why we're distributing food to all of them. What they're acknowledging is, hey, there's something broken in our system along these cultural lines. Let's try to address this. And so what is the way they choose to address this? They gather the entire community together, right, along its broken lines and says, let's solve this together. Here's what we need to do. Choose from among you seven people filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom to address this so that we can do what we're called to do, which is continue to preach and pray, and they can do what they're called to do by Jesus to ensure that we're distributing food very well. Um, and what's striking to me <clears throat> is the people they chose are described as full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And it's very clear as um, that community gathers that they've chosen people who are in no way inferior to what, who the apostles seem to be in terms of the spiritual leadership that they're offering. And here's why I think that um, Stephen is one of the seven men who are chosen. And he's described in, um, later in Acts as full of the spirit. Stephen is the one who um, takes up the next couple chapters of the book of Acts. What does Stephen do? You never get a story of Stephen going, okay, I sat down and began to work out a new flow chart for how food will be distributed throughout Jerusalem for all the widows, right? You never hear a story of that. You never hear Stephen going, you know, let's start counting out the food. I mean, like there's, there's no actual logistic work involved, which I find fascinating, even though I love that kind of, planning. The first things you hear about Stephen um, in verse eight, right, the very next line is, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power performed, great wonders and signs among the people. And because of his preaching and of the miracles that occur, because of the witness that he was doing, their opposition emerged from the synagogue of the freedmen. Um, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria. So probably it may be that Stephen actually comes from Alexandria or Cyrene, which would be North uh, Africa today. And I'm moving my hand this way because I have a map in my head. But so... Does that seem familiar to anybody? People who are doing miracles, who are proclaiming the word in such a way that would um, cause opposition to arise from a community in Jerusalem? Why, that's what was happening to the apostles just before chapter six started, right? Um, It's clear these are spiritual leaders doing spiritual activities, and um, they have uh, power in doing that. This wasn't a task assigned to lesser leaders who aren't as spiritual or aren't as good as leaders. Um, Simon is clearly among them, and if Um, Philip is the same Philip who we see later in Acts, then this is the Philip whose daughters were prophets and who was regarded as a leader in the early church. Um, And so if they've been able to identify a little bit of the privilege that's disrupting the system in Jerusalem, and if they were able to engage it by acknowledging this is really a problem, let's deal with it and let's increase the leadership of the church to engage this deeply, Let's look at how they actually steward privilege in that case, right? How do they steward this opportunity? In verse 5, it says this. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, or Timon, not sure, Doug, sorry, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who then prayed and laid their hands on them. Um, I love the fact that, one, it was the whole community that was engaged, They chose people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And here's why those two criteria are really important at this moment, right? The church is divided. It's experiencing deep pain and they want people who are full of the Holy Spirit. Because what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, one, the Holy Spirit indwells us, right? Um, In a difficult situation where the church is threatened with division and our witness is compromised. um, It's crucial that the people making some of the decisions are actually filled with God's spirit. So they're leading in God's way. It's crucial that Not only are they um, filled with God's spirit and leading God's way, it's God who is empowering them to do the hard things that need to be done. It's crucial that um, these aren't men who are just smart, but they're wise. And there's a a huge difference between intellectually smart and being wise. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then I trust that you have the fruit of the spirit that's manifesting around you. Right? Right? Imagine walking into a place of uh, ethnic or cultural or racial division and tension where there seems to be injustice and the gifts that you bring at that moment are the fruits of the spirit. I'm going to demonstrate what love looks like and peace looks like and joy looks like and gentleness looks like and self-control looks like, right? Um, I'm going to demonstrate what goodness looks like and faithfulness looks like. Can you imagine how different those fruit would be In those conversations rather than the fruit that we often see in the cultural uh, conversations and conflicts around us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-faithfulness and self-control. Imagine the healing way that the fruit of the Spirit would begin to enter in that picture. You in part want people filled with the Holy Spirit, not just because they're filled with God's presence and they're manifesting his fruit, but also because the Spirit throughout scripture, is described as the spirit of guidance, right? When you're confronted with an an otherwise unsolvable problem, and I I would suggest that in part the problem of race in the United States has been a 400- and continuing-year-old problem. What we really need is guidance from the Holy Spirit. How do we break this and change this in ways that honor you better? And so they choose people filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom, And what's fascinating, and some of you probably noticed or have heard before, every name they chose seems to, every person they chose seems to have a name that's distinctly Hellenistic. Right? Um, Listen to the names again, and it may be, the distinction doesn't mean much, but as you listen to them, Stephen, Philip. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, who was clearly not a Jew. He was a convert to Judaism from Antioch, which would have been considered more at the Hellenistic side of the world, though, kind of on the border. It's fascinating that when they chose to address the situation, the community together, majority of whom were Hebraic Jews, said, how do we solve the unequal distribution of food? The Holy Spirit leads them to, and they see wisdom and concurrence by selecting people who come all exclusively from the community that has been um, disadvantaged. One of the ways they stewarded privilege and opportunity, right, was to empower those who were not empowered. They created a platform and gave them authority and responsibility. I, and think about the incredible risk and the uh, Um, trust that they're extending here. You feel like your community has not gotten adequate food from the central distribution that we've been largely responsible for running because we're in the majority. Why don't you take it? We trust you. We trust that you can fix this problem. We trust because you're being led by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to take revenge. We trust that uh, where we were blind, you may see things. We trust that... uh, We're one body, and the best way we demonstrate we're one body is to put ourselves in a place where just as you used to be dependent on us, we will make ourselves dependent on you. They chose the people who were most disempowered, most ignored, and most discriminated against to be in charge. Think how different that is from how our culture usually tries to address these problems. They didn't move to a democratic system. Well, you know, you're about 40% of the population, we'll give you 40% of the seats at the table. Um, It wasn't, okay, you know, uh, why don't you make a couple suggestions and we'll try to fix the system. It was, let me release to you the responsibility to do this and the power to do it. And we will trust in love that you'll make decisions that will honor Jesus. What allows them to release kind of power and authority and responsibility in this generous way? I I suggest it's the example of Jesus himself, right? As Philippians reminds us who, um, though being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead took on the form of a servant and became obedient to to, fate to the point of death, even death on a cross. If that's the model, which these early believers knew and saw and sung about in that hymn that was then later captured in Philippians. Perhaps that was the model that they chose to live into. Well, if Jesus could release power and authority and equality for the sake of glorifying God, then cannot we do the same? How would that change the conversations that we're in around the country now? And if it seems frightening or seems to require a lot of faith, then perhaps that's precisely the thing that it needs to do. For example, um, right now, um, obviously, whenever and I say this to our shame in intravarsity, um, intravarsity students right now about 54% non-white or non-U.S. citizens. We reflect the actual demographics of the college campus now, which is majority non-white. Um, but every time there's a racial crisis nationally, now you know 2015, 16. Um, it forces senior leaders like me to be very aware of uh, the pain that some of our black brothers and sisters are feeling. And so then we scramble and try to respond to this. I see Dr. Barquette on the call, uh, on the thing. And so I'm sure he's just shaking his head going, you know, we've tried to talk about this before. Have sustained effort across beyond times of crisis is your problem. We're working on that. But we recently met with um, the leading servants team from our black campus ministries. And the tendency for people in my position in the senior leadership is to go, hey, we hear you're in pain. Here's six things we're going to do now to fix the problem. And what we've chosen to do instead, we just were in a a three-hour meeting with them on Tuesday, was to say, tell us what you need us to do. Rather than have us who are in authority dictate the terms of how we will try to fix the problem, will you, the people... Um, negatively affected by what's happening, but also by the systems that we've created that do not benefit or serve you well. You tell us what you need, and then we will take that with our own sense of wisdom as leaders and then figure out, given what you've told us, how will we uh, do what you've asked us to do so that you're better served? Because we clearly have not been able to see what you see and have not experienced what you experience because we've allowed this to continue longer. And so they've come up with a list of five things that they said, these are the crucial things that need to happen. Now, what's embarrassing to me is they're the things that I know were said five years ago, the last time we had this kind of a conversation. But I think what's crucial in this round is we're letting them tell us what, they need, what needs to be done and we're going to do it. And it was fascinating, one of the, they gave us our five lists, and one of my colleagues said, I'm really concerned because the amount of money we'll spend to fix these five things. Wouldn't it be better to just um, supplement the staff support of the staff who are most struggling in uh, the black community right now in intervarsity? And part of what I thought was helpful was that we said, actually, that's the problem we always make. We always think we know better than the leaders of that community, what they actually need. They did not ask for that. They didn't ask for more staff support. What they asked is for us to address these four other things. Let's actually do what they ask us to do and see if that makes a lot better change than what we would like to do ourselves. What's the result of this happening, right? Like I, I, you may, this may be a very uncomfortable sermon, Um, Probably as I'm going along as well, but um, there's incredible cost for the early church in acknowledging that there's pain and inequality in dealing with their failures as a community, but also the cultural blinders that may be there. It's an incredibly costly thing to say, I'm going to release power and do what you ask me to do to better serve you, even though I'm going to give up a lot by doing that. Look at at verse um, seven. This is the reason we do this, I think. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Think about that for just a second. The word of God spread. Because I think when the church lives out its vocation as a church, suddenly people go, I didn't know the scripture spoke so powerfully to the things that most are most pressing in our world, I want to hear more. And what I'll say is when I talk to college students, what they most frequently say is, I like Jesus, I think Christianity is irrelevant or actually the cause of the problems we face in our society. And when they in fact discover that scripture speaks so powerfully to the issues that we wrestle with, they're suddenly intrigued. The word of God didn't just spread, but The number of disciples began to increase. The church began to grow because people said, if that's what Christianity looks like, if that's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, I want in. I'm not just curious. I want to belong to that. And I think all of us would say, right, if we could actually find a reconciled and reconciling community that honored Jesus, worshiped him deeply and was so distinctly different from the culture around them because they were demonstrating what justice and truth looked like, people would be flocking to our doors. But instead, right, too often, we all read the same papers. Usually, the church is, demonst- is pointed at as the problem rather than as a potential solution. The church causes these issues and it doesn't solve these issues. But the disciples began to increase rapidly as the church took the step. And what I love is that last almost throwaway line from Luke. Um, And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Who are the people most antagonistic to the church in Luke and Acts? It's the priests. Who are the people who just persecuted the apostles in the end of chapter 5? It was the priests in the Sanhedrin and the scribes. And who are the people who, as the church chooses to tackle the issue of injustice and cultural and ethnic division, um, who become obedient to the faith? the people most resistant to the gospel are saying, there is something about you followers of Jesus that we currently cannot find in the ways that we are attempting to worship the Lord. It must be true that Jesus is Messiah. And I will become obedient to the faith. And I will give myself to him. May I, one of those who used to persecute the church, now be one of its greatest promoters, right? Um, Why does this act have so much power to allow the word of God to spread for the disciples to increase rapidly and for former persecutors to become promoters of faith? It's because of what Dick said last week. In fact, when we live out this mandate, this vocation, this sense of calling, to engage these issues, we're not just doing something to engage the culture or to be relevant. We're actually participating what God intended from the very beginning, to draw people to himself and to reconcile themselves together. And when we proclaim that and live out what God intended from the beginning and will accomplish at the end of time, then we're fully aligned with his purposes and with his calling. We realize it's not a distraction, but it's in fact a way for God to make himself known in the world. So that as Paul reminds us, um, at the earlier part of Ephesians, everything is for, um, lives to the praise of his glorious grace. In the end, we choose to tackle these hard things, not because the culture demands it, but there are a lot of things the culture demands that we're going to say no to. And not just because we feel um, compassionate enough to do it, Because I guarantee, at least in my own experience, I don't have nearly enough compassion or love in my heart to tackle these harder issues. Um, I, I would rather make myself safe, secure, and comfortable. The only reason I will choose to tackle them or engage them or speak about them or work against them is because I'm convinced God has been doing this from the very beginning of time, that as I do it, I'm living out what the gospel looks like in the deep hope, not only that injustice will be erased, but that as people look at it, what they do is say, in that community, in what they're saying and what they're doing, I see Jesus and if people see Jesus and become his disciples, if the former persecutors become promoters, then we've accomplished what we desire, don't we? People become followers of Jesus. And then I think everything begins to change. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, as we think about issues of uh, racial failure and racism and um, brokenness and injustice. We recognize both um, there are times that your church has been at the forefront of speaking gospel truth to demonstrate that you are a God of justice and love, that you desire all people to be in one harmonious body together, worshiping you in all their diversity. And at other times we've inadvertently reinforced the systems that exist or sometimes explicitly reinforced the systems That And so, Lord, I pray, would you help Community Bible Church and every church in the United States and around the world live out your truth so fully that the word of God would spread rapidly, the number of disciples would increase dramatically, and even people who are antagonistic toward the faith, the nuns who identify with no religious group, those who've walked away from faith out of disgust or anger, would turn and say, I struggle with that community, but I see Jesus there. I want to follow him. Glorify yourself, I pray. Glorify yourself in our actions and our words and the ways that we choose to live and engage. Amen.